so much in practice is uh, a deepening understanding of what it means to make appropriate effort. It's very tricky, and I think it's okay for us to feel a little bit like uh, we're floundering. Like sometimes you may be practicing for weeks on end, and it feels like the only thing good about what you're doing is you're showing up. But after you show up, it's like the mind does something, and then before you know it, the sits over, and it, you're not even sure if it's wholesome. I mean, you're pretty sure that showing up is wholesome, like actually getting to your chair or cushion to do your meditation practice. You're pretty sure that that's wholesome. But you may not be so sure what you actually do when you're sitting is wholesome. And sometimes it's like that. Or other times we're sitting, and it's like we, we're really clear what we think we should be doing. You know, we're, we're very goal-oriented. You know, I want to quiet the mind, or I want to see this clearly. I want to see the breath clearly, or I want to understand something. And the mind can be quite tight. So effort sort of tends to swing between feeling lost or helpless, confused, full of doubt about what we're doing, like we're floundering, or very much like uh, we're on the trail, you know, and we know where we're going, and we're really sure, and we just got to push through and get there, and better get out of my way, because anything in my way is going to get flattened. And, and we tend to go back and forth between these two. And in, in a way, being helpless for a while sometimes evokes this more aggressive approach to effort. Like, I'm sick and tired of being helpless. I'm being a victim of my own mind. I'm going to slash and slay and, and be free of Saita Upandita, one of the more well-known and, and, and very fierce Burmese teacher, older teacher, Buddhist monk. He sometimes likens that kind of mind. He calls it, or he describes it as a, an old horse blanket, mildewed and heavy and slightly rotten. You know, that, that we can have that kind of mind, that helpless mind. And so we, we can react and get to this other side where we feel like the answer is to um, generate this quality of uh, aversion. You know, I hate being helpless. I hate being confused. And we just, in a way, we construct clarity. <laughs> we imagine we know where we're going because we don't want to feel like we don't know where we're going anymore. So we just decide this is where we're going. And we create an idea, and then we take off, and we get, you know, we feel somewhat more comfortable because at least we have some imagined path. So this is why effort's tricky, because we tend to swing back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, what we're trying to realize is a more natural effort, an effort that's... Uh, not about either of those two extremes. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to come back to where we left off last week just to check in. I had been talking the last few weeks about uh, a model that the Buddha used to teach effort, right effort, and this was the four exertions. And what he was teaching is that uh, that there is a, a way to devote ourselves as human beings interested in not being burdened by life, being burdened by being a human being, that we want to apply ourselves or devote ourselves to seeing or discerning. And, and he gave us four things to apply ourselves to. So discerning how it is that we can use the mind to prevent unwholesome mind states from getting established, and how we can use the mind to abandon unwholesome mind states that are already present, and how we can use the mind to cultivate or develop wholesome states that aren't present, 
and how we can use the mind to maintain the wholesome states that are present. So it's very commonsensical. And he said, we can, we can forget everything else and simply practice these four endeavors. Endeavoring to prevent unwholesome states from being in the, coming into the mind, abandoning the unwholesome ones, cultivating the wholesome and maintaining the wholesome. And you can just remember those four words. Preventing, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. And that would just remind us of what we're doing. But really, all four of these endeavors, it's just about, mostly, it's just about cultivating appropriate attention. It's all about knowing what to pay attention to and, even more importantly, how to pay attention. So we need to know both what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. So it keeps it really simple because, you know, if you ever look at the Buddhist teachings and then you add on all of the other uh, disciples of the Buddha for the last 2,500 years and then you add on to that all the other wisdom, spiritual traditions on this planet, and we'd have a pretty big library of books, and it would feel very overwhelming to try to figure out, you know, what everybody's saying. So it's nice to narrow it down. Okay, it's about, in my own life, in my own experience, it's about figuring out what's relevant to pay attention to and what's not so relevant to pay attention. That's one thing we need to figure out. And the other thing is to figure out how to pay attention, like what way of paying attention is skillful and which way of paying attention is not so skillful. You know, we can pay attention with an agenda and is that skillful or not? Or we can pay attention with more of a quality of openness or wonder or uh, like... Uh, equanimity and maybe that's a more skillful way to pay attention. So that's what I mean about how to pay attention. How are we paying attention and what are we paying attention to? So this last week, last week I spoke about the second of these four endeavors which is when our mind is caught up in some unwholesome state like we're just finding ourselves during the course of a day caught up in a lot of aversion or irritation or impatience or anger, or the other side, we find ourselves caught up in a lot of lust, or a lot of greed, longing, hoping, some form of craving. How do we skillfully unhook from that? So then we just have those two questions. So what should we, so let's just use the example of aversion. Whatever your particular tendency is with aversion, you know, maybe for some of you it's impatience, for me it might be uh, controlling or fear might be my typical way of getting caught up in aversion is to be either fearful and then it's expressed as maybe being a little controlling. Um, but everyone would be different. Other people acted out in a more sort of like uh, getting irritated and um, maybe even being aggressive with people or unkind with people. So let's just say we have some aversion going on and it's just been around a lot during the day. So the question is, what, what aspect of our experience should we pay attention to and how should we pay attention to that aspect of experience? What's the relevant thing to pay attention to and how should we pay attention to it? And in this path that the Buddha lays out, it's actually really simple because it's always the same answer. Pay attention. The thing we pay attention to in our experience is try to discern where the suffering is most acute. And not theoretically where the suffering is most acute, but the actual moment-to-moment -moment experience of feeling burdened, weighed down, heavy. So suffering. We want to pay attention to the suffering. We want to find it. And it's actually not so easy because our story about the suffering is swirling around the actual pain of the suffering. So there is, there is this heart, you know, and when I say heart, I mean the place where we suffer, 
the place where we feel weight, burdened in life, right? So that's the heart. We have a heart, but we have a story about why this is happening to me or why this shouldn't be happening to me or why that person shouldn't have done what he or she did. And that story swirling around and it's very seductive and it keeps us from actually paying attention to the weight of the suffering, to the suffering itself. So it, we have to sort of trace back through a process of non-confusion. You know, we have to practice not being confused, not being seduced by our story to actually get to the pain, to the weight, to the contraction of, this, of the aversion in this case. And then once we're, once we're able to start touching, connecting, sustaining attention with that suffering, then the question arises, how to pay attention? Now, we have to ask that question because what's our habit? If we are able to get there to the pain, to the weight, how do we want to pay attention? We want to pay attention with an agenda of getting rid of the pain, right? That's our habit. But let me figure this out so I can get beyond this, you know, because this is not pleasant. So that's why there's this real emphasis on how we pay attention because we're practicing paying attention with what we generally call mindfulness, which is, you know, mindfulness is used both in a very technical way, but right now I'm using it in a more general way, which is, you know, uh, probably the more specific translation is wisdom mindfulness or appropriate attention or wise consideration or um, clear comprehension. These are different ways the Buddha talks about it and people translate the Pali. So what we want to do is we want to understand the suffering with wisdom. We want to see it with wisdom, which means we want to see it as a natural phenomena. And in order to see it as a natural phenomena, we have to have enough equanimity not to take it personally. If we take the suffering the way of the aversion personally, we're going to react and of course we're going to want to get rid of it. So we have to have some spaciousness, some equanimity, some wisdom present so that we can sit or open to whatever weight, whatever discomfort, whatever burdensomeness we feel in the heart. And we just sit there. So this is right effort. This is the effort to abandon. And all of the wholesome techniques that I talked about last week, you know, substituting positive for negative, wholesome for unwholesome, or reflecting on the unwholesome, seeing the scrutinizing the drawbacks of unwholesome mind states and, and skillfully ignoring and all these other techniques the Buddha talks about, they arise naturally. We don't even need to sort of have some internal list. Okay, let's do this strategy. Let's do that strategy. If, we're, if we are clearly comprehending suffering, so if we're able to discern, oh, this is the weight in this moment. This is the suffering in this moment. This is how the heart is burdened in this moment. Right here, right now, this is the experience like this. If we can get there and then practice being open, non-reactive, non-judging, non-interfering, this is what we generally call mindfulness or mindful awareness. If we can be there then we will know how to respond skillfully. Because what, what that does, what that openness does, is it frees up any wisdom we have is activated. And sometimes we'll be wise in the sense that there will be a lot of skillful means which just naturally come to mind in that moment, like how to relate. Like maybe right now the most appropriate thing to do is to forgive myself. Or maybe the appropriate thing to do is to just have this sensitivity or this feeling, I care about this suffering. I care about how all human beings are burdened by aversion. You know, this world is, you know, all of these hearts in this world, we, they are all burdened by fear, by impatience, by hatred. Do you know anybody not burdened by this to some degree? 
and just look at what's going on in this world so we can just turn and meet it with compassion. And sometimes the appropriate response will come up that we need to skillfully back away from this pain because there's not enough stability in the mind to be with it. And we may go take a shower or go watch a funny movie or go call a good friend, take a walk. But those skillful responses come from knowing what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. And then it just naturally, the wisdom flows right from that. The, the different skillful means just flow right from that. And it's really nice to see how that is because, you know, in because the Buddhist tradition was an oral tradition for so many years after the time of the Buddha, before it got written down, it's like all these different lists and all these teachings are laid out in different ways and different people are in different places, so there are different sort of ways of talking about the practice depending on whether somebody has really developed a lot of um, sort of intellectual capacity or people have a more simple mind or whether people have a lot of practice experience or whether people are brand new to practice. So there's a lot of different teachings from different angles and it can feel overwhelming. So tonight it's nice to take all of what we've been learning over the last few weeks and just remember that the most important thing about right effort is one, to know we have to make effort every moment. Because, you know, we have this idea that spiritual life is just about trusting the heart, you know, just sort of letting go, letting be, let go, let God. I remember someone had a button like that once or a bumper sticker, let go, let God. So we have this idea sometimes that, and I think there's some truth to that idea of letting go. But, but actually, when we start looking at our situation, we see we are mostly being swept along by our habit energy. And so if we, in the beginning of our spiritual life, just let go, or just letting go into our habit energy, and we just continue to be swept along with our habits of aversion, our habits of craving, our habits of being distracted, and that's what's going to happen. So somehow we have to make an effort. This is Sarah Dowering, uh, one of the senior teachers at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. She has this phrase where she talks about, you know, the, the mind is under the gravitational pull of our habits, and they're not very skillful generally. And we have to make an effort to resist, to overcome that gravitational pull. Because they are habits, it's that pattern, those patterns are well greased, so we're going to tend to fall back into them over and over again. And it will be different for each of us. So we do need to make an effort. We need to remember that. We're not following the mind, we're actually training the mind. Training the mind away from what its habit is to what we have decided through our experience is a more wholesome way. So we are retraining the mind. So the first thing we have to remember is effort is needed and the best kind of effort is a continuous effort. Not like a big push for 30 minutes when we're sitting in the morning and then forgetting about it for the rest of the 20 hours during the day. But over time what we want to cultivate is a continual effort and in this style of practice, in awareness practice, mostly this effort, the way we uh, think about this effort is the effort to remember that there's something to do in this moment. That every moment there is either, um, we're either seeing choices or we're acting out like a robot and we're just sort of uh, living out our habit energy and we're pretty much unconscious that there are any choices. So if we remember that there are choices in the moment, that kind of wakes us up. Like even right now, believe it or not, you are making, we're all making choices moment by moment. Like the choice to be attentive or the choice to space out. That's a choice we're making moment by moment. 
the choice to relax and accept the sensations in the body or the unconscious choice to resist what's unpleasant in the body. You know, if you're feeling drowsy now, if you're not mindful, you're not going to know that there's a choice with this drowsiness. We can either resist the drowsiness or judge ourselves for being drowsy, you know, like some form of self-aversion or self-hatred, or blame somebody for our drowsiness. But if we're mindful, we see all those choices, and maybe we can see a more skillful choice, which is to completely accept the drowsiness as drowsiness. Oh, sleepiness is like this. Can this be okay, this sleepiness? So first we need to know there, are, there is an uh, opportunity for effort, and this effort is to remember that there are choices being made, and we can wake up to that. And then as we wake up, it sort of activates what I've been talking about. There is something to pay attention to in this moment, and there's a, a skillful and an unskillful way to pay attention. And that's the edge of our practice. And we can do that all day long. There is something to wake up to called the present moment. And this is this dance of different intentions, different choices. That's what we wake up to, this, this uh, amazing pivot point. You know how I remember in some sci-fi stories they talk about parallel universes, right? And it's like every moment, you know, I could stand up and dance now, and that would set up a parallel universe. Because that would set in motion all kinds of things, like some of you would leave. <laughs> and then that would change your lives if you laughed and didn't come back because Mark, for some strange reason, stood up and, yeah, Maria was going to leave. Because I'm not dancing, she was going to leave. <laughs> or I might say something really profound and then that might uh, cause something else. And so in every moment we make choices and it's sort of like these little pathways are taken and, and in that way we create our life. And that's either done with wisdom, the wisdom of being present, or it's done unconsciously, which is just how much wisdom our habit energy has in that, at that time. And often our habit energy does not have a lot of wisdom infused in it because it's blind. Because even if the, even if the wisdom, I mean, even if the habit energy is sort of not inherently bad, but the fact is it's arising not based on, on that sort of awakened reflection. It's, it's a reaction based on how things have been conditioned. And it may or may not be skillful. But if we can really be there, then we can see, oh, now how do we get clear about how to respond? Well, we see where the suffering is, and we open to that. Because if we don't open to the suffering, we're reacting to it blindly. So we can't actually land in the moment until we make peace with dukkha. And here's another interesting thing. You can just have this as a hypothesis. There's always dukkha. Even in really beautiful moments of your life, there's always suffering or stress or discomfort or some degree of being burdened, even in the really beautiful moments. Because even in the really beautiful moments, there is some sense that it's not permanent and we should protect this beautiful moment so it doesn't go away. And that's a burden. So we want to open to the burden, open to the weight, so that we can really land, really be there in the moment. Then we really see what's going on and we completely stay open. So we don't feel like we have to make the skillful choice. We let the skillful choice be made by getting out of the way, by trusting that being open will bring in whatever wisdom is available. As much wisdom as available will arise if we get out of the way. And the way we get out of the way is we completely open. We devote ourselves to being open so much so that there's no part of the mind left to try to choose to make the right choice. And we do things. We either get up and dance, or we say something profound, or we sit in silence, or we, you know, we just do whatever we do. One of the things I like to do um, 
uh, in my younger years, uh, I like I spent a lot of time backpacking and just out in the woods and wilderness. And a good friend of mine, and we would love to go uh, along, you know, kind of small streams or creeks, and like boulder hop. And it's so interesting when you're doing that. And I was, I, you know, I used to be in pretty good shape. And and the nice thing about doing things like that is you can't plan if you try to uh, try to figure out like how to do it you end up making mistakes but if you just relax you're, you, the, there's sort of a natural wisdom and we can learn this in life but it, but it requires a few things in life it requires that we're really present and the way we know we're really present is we are completely open so in this case you have to be open to the danger. You have to you have to be feeling that energy, that rush of danger. If you try to deny it, that denial actually removes you from the experience a little bit. And this is true raising kids. It's true going to work. It's true driving in traffic. It's true everywhere. Everything's dangerous. You know, we're, we're always at, we're always in danger of doing something unskillful that can cause suffering for ourselves or others. So we want to feel that preciousness or tenderness or sensitivity or vulnerability because it's always there. We want to live with it. That's how we know we're being intimate. That's how we know we've opened to the dukkha, to the suffering. And then we practice staying open and letting wisdom arise in that moment, letting choices be made from that place of intimacy. Because otherwise we're going to think that right effort is making the right choice. And boy, is that a burden. Because first of all, we usually don't make the right choice. And then we hate ourselves for not making the right choice. You know, And then we probably hate ourselves for hating ourselves. And it just goes on from there. And then we feel humiliated because other people see that we're hating ourselves. And we know we shouldn't be hating ourselves. <laughs> So it's really nice to let go of all that and and to trust that possibility. You know, it's an exploration that we can really make the effort to let our life unfold naturally, effortlessly. But it takes a, a very committed redirection. So that's the effort. It's like we're moving from being dead. You know, the Buddha really says this. He says, the heedless are as if already dead, meaning people who aren't uh, making this effort to pay attention to dukkha and to be open. So what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. People not making that effort are as if already dead. And I think what he means is they're asleep. We're asleep when we're like that. In the, asleep in the sense of just acting out our habits. We're just on, ha on autopilot in a way. And he said the heedfulness, this wakefulness, is the path to the deathless, is the path to liberation. That's all we have to do. It's so nice, you know, as an ego, as a human being who wants to be happy, I just need to remember what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. And I need to remember to do it that it's that it's there's never a time not to do this. I mean, I'll miss I'll mess up, of course. I'll space out for periods of time. Sometimes for weeks on end, you, we just get overwhelmed by life, and we're just totally not there. We're disconnected from our life. Sometimes for years, I, and I, I I mean not necessarily completely, but generally, we can disappear for years. Just too much pain, and we just. Uh, we, we sort of probably sometimes without any choice we just fall into habit thinking you know that that's the way to protect yourself but that's just how it is but eventually eventually we'll wake up and then we can remember these three things there's always an effort to be made and the effort to be made is to know what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. 
And the what is always suffering, stress, the feeling of being burdened in the moment. And the how is being open to it. And these are practices. You know, we don't have to be perfect. We're just moving in this direction, making an effort in this direction over and over again. And I think it's really important to, uh, to understand this uh, with a long-term view. Not to think that if we do this for a day or week, that somehow things are going to radically change in our life. But basically, to, to cultivate this feeling, this sense that we're in it for the long haul, no matter how many times we get distracted and forget, we remember, oh yeah, I'm, I'm cultivating a continuous effort to see where the burden, to feel the burden, to feel the weight, to feel the dukkha, and to open to it. And that's my path. My path is not a path of distraction, of finding the perfect partner, or the perfect job, or the perfect group of friends, or the perfect body or the perfect set of teachings, but to directly use our life to see the dukkha, to open to the dukkha, and to see how skillfulness comes from that, how wholesomeness comes from that, wisdom comes from that. That any extra effort, like to make it happen faster, gets in the way, or to try to hold on to the skillfulness that arises at times gets in the way. The word effort in Pali is virya, and it's actually from the word, uh, it's related to the word viral in English. You know, Sanskrit, the language, uh, the ancient language of northern India, it's related to the Western, uh, many of the Western languages. So uh, there's a sense of uh, courage in this term of effort. And so the courage, I think, comes up because it's a real change in how we live our lives. We're pretty comfortable living lives of distraction, you know, and we are basically codependent. We encourage, mostly we encourage each other to live lives of distraction. I mean, I see it all the time in my relationship with Wynn. Wynn's been gone for six weeks and now she's back. And what's interesting, it's like you can't win. When win's gone, I notice how easy it is for old patterns of, you know, taking up distraction to come up. But I also notice when win's around how uh, we sort of use each other to sort of do things that are distracting. You know, it's how we can just sort of create drama, not necessarily bad, or create work, or create activity almost as a way to fill up our lives. Do you notice that in, in your relationships or just generally in your life, how easy it is to fill the space? I know some people now that are starting to retire, and this is one of the things they always say. Uh, it's just like how easy it is to fill up. I mean, it's like they feel busier than they were when they were working full time. And uh, so we just have to understand this tendency and to uh, realize it takes a lot of courage to live a different kind of life, to move from uh, thinking that distraction is going to take care of us to really working with our life in this slow burn way. There's a word in Sanskrit and also in Pali. I don't, I'm not sure what the word is in Pali, but in Sanskrit it's tapas. And it may be the same word in Pali. But you might, if you take yoga class, you might hear this word tapas. But it, it, I think, in some ways it means fire, but more specifically as a spiritual term, it means a burn, a burning. And often we think of spiritual life as leading to peacefulness and to coolness. The coolness like a mind that's free of agitation. And it's true. But often to get there, we have to we have to cultivate some heat because we're, we're creating friction. It's the friction 
of not going along with our habit energy. You know, we're, we're in the motion of distraction, of watching TV, of turning the radio on, of reading the paper, of wanting to hear the news more times than maybe we need to, of talking to friends, of having people around, of having a, you know more clothes than we need, more kitchen devices than we need, more this than we need, more that than we need, more books than we need, more teachers than we need. So there's just this general, you know, mostly we're distracting ourselves through consumption. That's just how it is. All of us, to some degree, are this way. Or we distract ourselves through worrying or self-hatred. I mean, there are all kinds of ways we distract ourselves. So to be, so this process of moving from distraction to these three efforts, the first effort is there's always something to do. And what that is is to pay attention to one thing, which is dukkha or suffering or stress, and to pay attention to it with openness, like the how we pay attention. These are the three efforts that you can use. So we're moving from distraction to this continual process of remembering and feeling and opening, and it, and it creates some heat. And we don't like it. We don't like the friction. Until we start to feel the coolness that that friction leads to, or that spaciousness, or that freedom that it leads to, then we don't mind doing the work. Human beings don't mind work. I mean, that's my sense of observing myself, but also just observing other people. Human beings do not mind working. I mean, just look at what we've done on this planet, <laughs> all the good and all the bad. I mean, just how much effort people do, you know. And we glorify effort, you know, Olympians and artists, you know, people who write these amazing books and build these amazing structures and raise seven kids and <laughs> all the amazing things that human beings do. It's so amazing. So people don't mind working, but uh, the problem is that we get um, we get disappointed, and because after a while, if we have enough sensitivity, enough clarity, we see that all of our efforts aren't leading anywhere. And maybe each of us have had this. I remember one time very distinctly after my freshman year in college, and. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, the way I was conditioned at that time in my life was I really wanted to be liked, you know, and I guess so. I guess I was 18 and 19 at the time, and so there you are, you know, going to a new place. Some of you who've gone to college, you know that what that's like. You're at a new place. There's a lot of people, you know, everyone is a potential person to impress <laughs> and to make them like you and think you're a nice person and maybe a smart person or maybe a kind person. Maybe, you know, who knows what. And uh, I remember at the end of the fresh freshman year, for, for whatever reason, I left a little bit later than most people. So I was there on campus and uh, just sort of wandering around in the days and feeling completely exhausted and having enough clarity to see that the exhaustion, the very deep exhaustion was all of those efforts over the past, whatever, 10 months, nine months, to sort of project something in, in hopes that people would like me or respect me. And just how incredibly exhausting that was. And of course, I was so busy trying to impress people that I didn't feel it until there was nobody left to impress. <laughs> and there it was. All, you know, just the accumulated exhaustion and burdensomeness of all of that. And uh, it was so interesting because it, it sat around for days, for weeks probably. It was a real insight. But I remember, it's like this ultimate compromise. I really got how unproductive this was. Like, this doesn't go anywhere. But I had no clue, like, what else to do. And I remember several weeks later, so then I was at home, and when I was home in the summer, I just worked because I had to, you know, pay for my college. And so I was just working several jobs. And, but I, but I was just remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be back, and I'm going to do it right this next time. And I really re trying to reflect, like, well, what should I do? You know, as a human being, what should I do? 
and it was so amazing this compromise I realized well I'm just going to try harder to impress people I'm going to try better to be liked and loved and cared for and it's like that's the only thing I could figure out <laughs> and, and I knew it was a compromise I mean I had enough awareness to see that but it was sort of this like existential thing where there's nothing else to do with my life and this seemed relatively harmless and this is what I'll do and so this is like uh, this, this terrible predicament we are in to continue with you know this is a relatively wholesome process of distraction what I'm describing you know trying to be nice trying to be liked I mean it would be great to have politicians who who are just want to be liked because then they would you know try to respond to what you know the people who vote for them or to have partners or family members who just want to be loved because they would try to be lovable <laughs> so it's that's a relatively wholesome way to to uh, live in this basic pattern of distraction like of avoiding the fact that these patterns are limited they're not really solving the problem of human suffering by feeling burdened so the Buddhist way was our the heart is burdened because we don't understand how it is we are living out of alignment that's what dukkha means we are not in alignment with the way things are so we need to make effort we have to make effort to move from our habit energy to this process of awakening this path of awakening that's what we practice here that's why we have a center to support each other in this process of awakening to help make this effort easier because we see that there are other people making the effort so I want to leave it here so that we have some time to hear from each other both in terms of what you've been practicing over the weeks in terms of abandoning the unskillful mind states or preventing unskillful mind states cultivating wholesome mind states but also any questions you have about the talk tonight any comments you have from your own practice that you'd like to share or anything that comes up so what comes to mind Kara um, I have a question about what you were talking about tonight about um, being aware the first, what was the first one being aware of the suffering well what I was saying even before that it's just that remember there's always effort there's always something there's always to do something. and then to be aware of it Mm -hmm. to, to know what to be aware of yeah to know how to be aware of it how, yeah. which is the open the to openness open so it seems like that's kind of a delicate delicate balance because you don't want to cling to it you want to be open to it but not cling to it because if you made a practice of trying to do that a lot you'd be a real vulnerable person to be around if you were clinging to it and really identifying with it because I think a lot of us, we try to be an optimistic person. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's this balance between being aware of something, open to it, but yet not, you know, walking around being bummed out because you've got a lot of suffering going on right now. But you know where real joy and, and love comes from is actually, uh, to some degree at least, uh, meeting our human suffering with awareness and uh, there's so much freedom there because once we meet suffering open to it then we don't feel burdened because we've already in a sense opened to whatever there whatever we might be afraid of opening to and there's a the natural response of that opening is a sense of freedom and and lightness and responsivity and a natural uh, capacity to engage the world to respond to the world in a free way in a way that's not burdened by our human suffering so we're actually a joy to be around if we do this otherwise what we're doing is we're sugarcoating you know it's a it's kind of an imitation of joy and an imitation of compassion and optimism because real optimism only can arise from having met life as it actually is to really touched whatever 
pain, suffering there is in our life, in our lives. If we haven't done that, our joy and optimism, compassion, it's not so useful for others and even ourselves. Because it's not based on uh, intimacy with life. It's based on hopefulness, you know, kind of hopeful thinking. Or fear of being anything but optimistic. In a way, we're attached to this identity of being an optimistic or cheerful person because we're afraid of being a grump, afraid of being not loved, for example. So you just see for yourself, Tara, whether you become a grump in doing this or whether the, this process of opening to dukkha is actually a source of real lightness and joy and a natural kind of tenderness and compassion for the suffering around you. To see, you know, what the effect is. Wendy? Um, your comment made me think a little bit about how when I started to get to a point where I could say, oh, this is just suffering, it just, it sort of took the power out of it. It's, and I, I didn't feel myself going into the story about the suffering. The story about the suffering is much larger, you know, than the actual uh, discomfort of whatever it is. And I think that the family habit, where I've seen others in my family, uh, like, literally almost make up stories about how they're suffering or they're a victim or they're, and, and then they, they're just always unhappy. And I see that sort of getting so engaged in the story that you allow yourself to become identified with that story. So for me in my practice, just being able to say, okay, this, this, uh, this is bad what happened, but it's okay. And just being aware of that level is really helpful. Thanks, Wendy. Other thoughts? Bonnie? I have a question about, uh, I understand making effort in order to derail our habit energy. Um, but I was wondering if the practice of making effort could become like good habit energy. Like as we teach ourselves how to act so it isn't as hard. So yeah. I, I was wondering if there is such a thing as good habit energy. I think there is. Yeah, we want to make that a habit. We want to make the, I mean, basically what I've been talking about tonight is the Four Noble Truths. And we want to make that process of turning towards dukkha and opening and understanding it, we want to make that our habit, the habit of the mind. So that, that we're just not inclined to distraction as much. As soon as that old habit of you know, distracting comes up, uh, we just see, you know, we just don't want to go there. We just, with awareness, we see it doesn't lead anywhere, you know, and then we just, in a way, we transmute it. We don't actually have to change what we're doing because distraction isn't so much what we do. It's not even that we can't watch TV anymore. It's just how are we relating to the experience of watching TV? You know, it's really nice to watch TV and just notice how like the aversion comes up when the advertisement, when the story, or at the end of the show, especially if it's been a really nice, engaging s story, you know, and just the aversion of it ending, you know, not wanting it to end. And I mean, so we can basically be doing this process of discerning anywhere. Obviously, some situations are more conducive than others. TV watching is probably relatively not conducive to practice. You know, city meditation is relatively conducive to practice, but we should be practicing everywhere as much as we can. Even when we're engaging in so-called unwholesome habits, we want to be practicing. And that's and we, we can do that if we set that new habit in motion. But see, this is a habit that leads to freedom from habits. So it's a very special kind of habit. Because it's a habit that's orienting the mind toward wakefulness, toward non-distraction. So it's not going to lead the mind into sort of unconsciously acting out, living through its life unconsciously. It's going to, it's a habit that leads to a greater continuity of wakefulness, of presence. But it, yeah, but it is, we are creating a habit. Just like coming to Common Ground is part of that habit, you know. I'm just in the habit of showing up on Wednesday night. I'm in the habit of coming back to my breath. I mean, using an anchor, we are skillfully creating a habit of the mind returning to a place. It knows where to return to. Oh, yeah, I feel the breath here. I feel the breath here. 
We just make it a habit. And it's a better habit than to immediately go to the whatever problem is up in our mind and, and go there after we've been distracted, you know. Go back to our problem. <laughs> Other thoughts? We have a little bit of time left. Jimmy. Um, my back's been kind of sore this week. And um, it's kind of been a problem that's kind of come and gone over the past couple of years. And it always was really irritating to me for a long time. And so just recently, I've been trying to you know, relate to it a little more skillfully and um, trying to take into account more non-reactivity and so the past couple of days, um, well, you know, I'll have some you know, prayings of pain. Um, since I'm aware of the effort that I'm trying to make in regards to it, it's not hitting me as hard as far as, you know, making me angry. But the thing that I have noticed is the more it, it'll hurt over an extended period of time, it's like, my mind will get tired mm-hmm. of being aware and spirit. Okay, whatever. I'm gonna get mad now. <laughs> You're gonna get what? I'm gonna get mad now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm done with this. But you know, I still try. And maybe right before, you know, you'll kind of get to know right when the mind is exhausted. But try to know it like right before it gets really exhausted, and then do something different instead of paying attention to the pain. Do something else with your attention open to hearing or reflect on loving kindness but give your mind something to do that takes it away because pain uh, especially as we're you know beginning our practice pain is withering it will exhaust the mind because out of habit it's not going to be possible to be completely open to pain right away but we can be kind of open and that's really good practice we're kind of open but the part of the heart that's not open is going to get exhausted and so eventually, we'll, we'll reach our limit. And right before we reach our limit, it's nice to skillfully remove the attention from the pain and put it somewhere else so that we get some relief. So that's skillful escape from, even though the pain might still be predominant, we aren't paying attention to it. We're putting the attention somewhere else. Yeah. Or even if you can, I mean, if it's easy enough, you can adjust your posture at that point if it relieves some of the tension or pain. Some people will even, if you're not like in a group setting, you can even lie down and continue your practice lying down then to relieve the pain. And then after the pain's relieved, maybe five minutes or so, then you can come back to your sitting position and continue your sit, like if you're at home practicing. That's the way to do it too. So let's leave it here. And we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.